Good to see you men here this morning. Let me pray, guys, and then we'll, we'll dive in our time together, all right? Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your grace, for your mercy, which are new every morning. And your loving kindnesses indeed never cease. And your mercies never fail. You're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is our portion, so says our souls. Therefore, we will have hope in him. Lord, we pray that you would now gird up the loins of our minds and grant us the grace to think your thoughts after you. We pray, our Father, that our hearts would be opened and that we would be humble as we hear your voice through the word. We pray that you would guard us from error. Our Lord, that you would keep us centered in the truth. We pray that uh, the gospel would be clear and that you would help us uh, to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for every man every young man, every boy that's here. We just pray, Lord God, that you would fill us with yourself and that we might be satisfied in you and grow in the fear of the Lord. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, brothers, we have some notes. If you guys want to take those out, I'm going to try to follow relatively closely to the notes. And these, obviously, seminar times are, are not obviously main sessions, so th this is not so much us preaching as it is us teaching, kind of lecturing a little bit. So this rhythm will be a little bit different than uh, what we heard this morning from Dr. F um, Dr. Montoya. Uh, but we do want to cover some ground here. So my, my task this morning is to talk about the uh, fear of God in light of God's omnipresence. Let me just kind of get a little survey. How many of you guys have ever heard of the omnipresence of God? Okay, generally speaking, most of us have. Okay, so we'll, we'll dive into that. Now, when Dr. Figgis gave me... Um, uh, some options on what to deal with, and this was one of those. I, I jumped at the opportunity to do this because I am, I'm convinced that uh, men of God are men who desire or should desire to really study doctrine, right? To just study the full revelation of God. And we all understand that as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, that, 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 that God has revealed himself to us in a book. Amen. We have obviously natural revelation, general revelation is out there. We can learn certain things about God, but the fullness of his revelation is contained in the word of God. And so if we want to know God, right, we got to go to the word of God and not be afraid to study doctrine, because as we study doctrine, we grow then in our love for God and for our time together, our fear of the Lord and intimacy with God. And as you study the Bible, brothers, what you will find is, is that obviously there, there are doctrines there. Uh, there's the doctrine of the Trinity. There's the doctrine of the dual nature of Jesus Christ. There's the doctrine of salvation. There's the doctrine of sanctification. There's the doctrine of end times. All these different doctrines that God has revealed for us in the word of God. But what you'll find is, and this is the beauty of God's revelation, is that all of these doctrines are connected together. They're not disconnected teachings about God that have no relationship uh, to each other, but it's just the opposite that the doctrines that we find in scriptures are interconnected and they are meant to build on one another to give us a clearer, fuller uh, revelation of who God is so that we might know him more intimately and walk with him more faithfully. Does that make sense? Now, I'm going to be asking you guys for some feedback. So when I say, does that make sense? You say, yes, or at least shake your head, right? I can't see your mouths because of your mask, right? So I was really excited then to take up this talk uh, on the omnipresence of God for the for the just the thought that not, not that the other topics are not meaningful, but this is something that typically we don't hear about. If I were to ask you guys, when's the last time you heard a sermon on the omnipresence of God? You would say 
maybe never, right? Maybe in a class, maybe in a Sunday school class, or maybe you take classes at LABTS. I'm even ashamed myself. I don't think that I've preached a sermon, Matt. I'm, 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 I'm behind the gun, right? I don't think I've preached a sermon on the omnipresence of God, but it's all over the Bible. No pun intended. It's all over the Bible that God exists everywhere at all times in the fullness of his being. And what I hope to do with our time together then is to show us the connectedness of the omnipresence of God and the fear of God. More specifically, that as we grow in our understanding of the omnipresence of God, that we will grow in response to that in the fear of God. That it is a doctrine that is given to us in order to produce within us a greater sense of fear and reverence and wonder and awe of who God is. That's what doctrine is meant to do, is to teach us who God is, that then in turn we will respond in a way that glorifies God through worship and through obedience. Now there's no doubt that the fear of the Lord is a central theme of God's revelation, and for the people of God it is of the utmost importance. There are countless texts that we can go through. We were doing a Bible drill this morning with Dr. Montoya, amen, looking at text after text, Old Testament and New Testament about the fear of the Lord. So there's a number of places that we can go to, and he obviously has another session to bring us into a fuller understanding of the fear of God, but I just wanted to underscore it to make the connection for our time together this morning with the omnipresence of God. So I have two texts in mind. They should be listed in your notes that I want to draw our attention to. So if you guys want to turn to Exodus chapter 20, verse 20. You guys should know uh, the scene here. Uh, God, through his mighty hand, using his servant Moses, has led the people of Israel out of the bondage to Egypt. He has taken them through and brought them to his mountain where he is going to give them his law. Now, please understand they are already his people. Amen. He has redeemed them and they are already his people. He's going to give to them their law, which is a sign of the covenant that he has entered into with them. And the scene here as they uh, are about to enter into that covenant, as Moses would go up to the mountain and receive the Ten Commandments, is an awesome, an awesome scene. How many of you guys are familiar with it? You've read it before, right? Exodus chapter 19, Exodus chapter 20 in particular, right? And so even if you drop back into Exodus 19, you just see this idea in verse 16. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And why were they trembling? Because God was coming down on the mountain. You guys get the scene. God is coming down. God is going to manifest his, his presence there on the mountain and his lightning and flashing and noise and sound so much so that God even tells Moses to tell the people to consecrate themselves to set themselves apart for three days because the Holy One is coming down and not to come near to the mountain because if they come near to the mountain male or female or boy or girl or even oxen or cattle what would happen they will what they will die it's an awesome scene Right. And so the people are terrified. I mean, they're hearing things and they're seeing things and they they are terrified because they know God is in their midst. And so Moses goes up. Moses receives the Ten Commandments. Moses comes back and they're having a conversation in verse 18. It says this. All the people perceive the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Verse 19. Then they said to Moses. Speak to yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will do what? 
I mean, you guys see what's happening, man. This, this is an awesome scene. So in other words, I mean, they are so afraid that they don't even want to hear God's voice. They're like, listen, Moses, we'll listen to you. Let God talk to you. You talk to us because we don't want to hear him because we'll die. In other words, they are so terrified that they're afraid to actually approach God. And there's a sense in which that's the right response. Let the brothers say what? Amen. This is the thrice holy God, right? This is the God that appeared to Moses. And when Moses was standing in front of in the ground of the of the burning bush, he did what? He took off his shoes because he was standing on what? Holy ground. Not that that ground was special in and of itself, but that ground was special because what? God descended on it and manifested himself there. And Moses was undone. That's who this God is coming down on that mountain. So in some senses, this kind of fear is the right response in the naked presence of God. But notice how Moses responds in verse 20. Moses said to the people, you guys say it, do not be afraid for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him might remain in you so that you may not sin. Now, it almost seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? It almost seems like a contradiction, right? Moses says, do not fear for the Lord has come to test you so that you might fear. Yeah, like, right? Okay, I'm the only one who read that and went, huh? Right? So, so there, there, there's, there's a kind of way to fear God for the people of God, and there's a kind of way not to fear God for the people of God. You guys understand? He's saying that do not fear, for the Lord has come to test you so that you might fear him. And I, and I take it to be fear him in the right way as God's people. And I would say that the way to fear him is to fear him in a way that doesn't draw you away from him, but draws you to him. It's still a reverence. It's still an awe. It's still a trembling. There's, there's still this understanding of the greatness and the grandeur and the majesty of who God is. But God means for it not to drive you away from him, but to drive you to him in worship and in praise and in adoration and in love and in obedience. You guys understand. So we talk about the fear of the Lord. We're not talking about a fear that casts us out, that, 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 that makes us want to run away from God. But it's a fear that want to make us do what? Draw near to God. Because we recognize who he is. And he is a being that is so compellingly beautiful and majestic and glorious that we want to be in his presence to worship him in a manner worthy of his name. So when we think of the fear of God, we want to be thinking that way. And then another text is Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, where it says this is the second giving of the law by Moses. It says, now, Israel, what does Yahweh, your God, require of you? Right. Whenever you read in the Bible where it says, what does God require of you? You got to do what? You got to listen. Right. Because God's about to tell you what it requires of you. Right. And what does he require of us? But to fear Yahweh, your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him and to serve Yahweh, your God, with all of your heart and with all of your soul. And I just underscore that to say the first thing that it says there in terms of what God requires of you is to fear God. All right. So it's a, it's a primary requirement that God has of all people, of his covenant people, especially that we do what? That we fear him. So this is not optional. Right. This is fundamental and this is essential that we be men who fear God. And so I want to just define the fear of the Lord in a simple way. Obviously, um, Dr. Montoya did that for us, and he'll continue to do this for us in his second session. But I have in our notes there just a very simple definition of the fear of God. 
And it is, if you guys are looking there, a holy reverence and trust in the triune God of the Bible. Now, there's a lot that can be teased out there. I won't take the time to do that, but that's just a simple way that I understand that I think is consistent with what the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is. A holy reverence and trust in the triune God of the Bible. And as I said, then it is foundational and essential to the Christian life. In fact, I go so far as to say that a heart without the fear of the Lord is a heart without the Lord. Now let's say it again, that a heart without the fear of the Lord is a heart without the Lord. Now, do we grow in the fear of the Lord? Absolutely, right? Our fear of the Lord should grow day by day by day. It never reaches the height, so we're always growing. But you have to fear the Lord. If you, if you meet the Lord in a saving way, he will produce within you fear of himself. He will supernaturally produce that in us. So someone who doesn't fear the Lord at all is someone who doesn't know the Lord. It is the beginning of so many things. It is the foundation of so much. You see in your notes, I just have a few things, and we won't expand on any of these things. As we think about the fear of the Lord, the Bible says in Proverbs 1-7 that the fear of the Lord is, begin, is the beginning of true knowledge, right? The beginning of knowledge, right? In other words, you can't know the way that you are supposed to know apart from what? The fear of the Lord. There are a whole lot of individuals in this world that know a whole lot more. They can take all the knowledge that we have and they know 10 times as much as all of that. But if they don't fear God, they don't know the way that they're supposed to know. Right? It is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of all true knowledge. Proverbs 9.10 says it is the beginning of true wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, if you do not fear God, you are a, somebody say it, you're fool. It's the fool that says in his heart there is no what? God, right? Professing to be wise, they became fools because they didn't fear God. And so it doesn't matter how many letters someone might have behind their names, what institutions they may attend, all their eruditeness. If they do not fear the Lord, the Bible says they don't know anything the way that they ought to know, and they are certainly not wise. And you could take someone who has never been to school, Right. And they might even be illiterate. But if they fear God, they're on the path of knowing the way that they should know. And they're on the path of being wise in the way that really matters for eternity. It's so foundational for us, brothers. This fear of the Lord is the beginning of true knowledge is the beginning of wisdom. It is the fountain of life. Proverbs 1427 says the fear of the Lord is to hate all that is evil, Proverbs 8.13. The fear of the Lord is to refrain from all evil, Proverbs 16.6. The fear of the Lord, as Dr. Montoya pointed us to a couple of times this morning, is the whole duty of man, Ecclesiastes 12.13. The fear of the Lord is the requirement for God's loving kindness, Psalms 103.17. The fear of the Lord leads to covenant intimacy with God. Psalm 25, 14, and the fear of the Lord advances a life of holiness, 2 Corinthians 7, 1. And those are just a few texts that just scratch the surface of the revelation of God in terms of the importance of the fear of the Lord. So if those things be true, and they are, we should then aim, I think it's logical to conclude that we should then aim at cultivating the fear of the Lord in our hearts as much as possible. And so our topic then for this morning, the omnipresence of God, will assist us in doing exactly that. 
the, the doctrine of the omnipresence of the Lord is meant to fuel the fear of the Lord in us. And so the fear of the Lord isn't per se so much a doctrine as it is a response to the doctrine that God has revealed himself to us in. Does that make sense? So God has revealed himself as we understand him more and more than we grow in fearing him is the idea. And the omnipresence of God is just such a doc, uh, doctrine that should do that. Now, when we think about the omnipresence of God, and this here's what we want to say for our time together. The, the, the word omni is simply a Latin word that means all. Typically, when you study the omnipresence you, uh, of God, you, you, you study two other omnis. Who knows what they are? Somebody want to tell me what they are? The omni. So the omniscience of God, which means what? All what? All knowledge and then what? Omnipotence of God, right? So these these three kind of come together, right? So omnipresence, God is at all places. Omniscience, God's in all things. And then uh, omnipotence, God has all power, right? And these are in the category, uh, for you theologians out there, it's helpful to know these categories, that these are in the categories of the incommunicable attributes of God, right? So when you break down the attributes of God, theologians have historically broken them down in those two categories, the communicable attributes of God and the incommunicable attributes of God. And what that simply means is that when God created us, he created us in his image. And there were some attributes of God that he communicated to us. That means he created us with the capacity of those. Right. So, uh, for instance, the other two seminars are on the wisdom of God and the love of God. Right. And we know that God is love. That's an attribute of God. Uh, wisdom, right? That's an attribute of God. And God communicated that to us when he created us, right? We have the capacity to love. We have the capacity to be wise. Those are communicable attributes of God. But then there's other attributes of God that he did not communicate to us as creatures. You guys follow me? Just nod your head. Make sure that I haven't lost this, right? All right, okay. So there, there, there are other attributes that he did not communicate to us, and omnipresence is one of those, right? I can only be present in one place at what? Right? And if you think you could be present at, at two places at once, then we need to have a counseling session after right, the conference, right? Right? You, you can only be, right? We, we are confined uh, to the dimensions of space and time, right? And material, right? So God didn't communicate omniscience to us. We don't know all things, right? He didn't communicate omnipotence to us. There are certain things that only exist in God, and omnipresence is one of those. Uh, for you theologians out there, the older theologians, you can find this in some systematic theology. Sometimes you can find the omnipresence of God under the ubiquity, ubiquity of God. And sometimes it's just kind of old English, meaning the same thing. So uh, you guys can study this under that heading as well. Let me give you what is a working definition for us in our time together this morning under the omnipresence of God here. And it could be improved on. And I just piecemealed a, a number of other um, definitions. What do we mean then by the omnipresence of God? We mean this, that God does not have size or spatial dimensions and is present at every point of space with his whole being, yet he manifests his presence differently in different places at different times. And let all God's men say, there's a lot there, right? There's a lot to unpack. I just give you a definition. I haven't given you any proof of that. And hopefully as we go through, we'll see some of the things. So what are we saying? We're saying that God in his essence is unlike his creation. 
That's what we're saying, right? Even though that the Bible uses anthropomorphic language, anthropomorphic language is language that communicates something of God in human terms, right? So we read in our Bibles the strong hand of the Lord or the strong arm of the Lord. But you should never let that make you think that God has what? Hands and an arm, right? The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth, right? God doesn't have eyes. There's all kind of language that's accommodative language used in the Bible to help us grasp something of the nature of God. But God in his essence is spirit. God is spirit and he doesn't have a body like men. That's an answer to a catechism question. God is spirit and he doesn't have a body like men, right? So never think of God as a man. Never think of God as a big man. And we're not talking about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're talking about God in the fullness of who he is. He is spirit. And because he is spirit, he is not confined to space and time like we are. And sometimes, if the truth be told, that's how we think about him. And we think about him that way because the, the Bible communicates the way. And, and so we need to really understand, OK, what does this mean? And again, he does not have size. He is not a big man. He, he is he is he is spirit and his spirit. We were not to think about his spirit in ways where and maybe put it this way. So even when we think about spirit, we sometimes think about like he's a big spirit, almost like spirit like gas. OK, so. We think about like God being really big, almost like this. Okay, we realize that God doesn't have physical uh, properties, but but He's really big, so He covers all of the universe. So if we're here in Inglewood, there's only a part of God here. But if I was in Texas, there would be another part of God there. You guys understand? We you may not admit that, but we sometimes think that way, right? That that God is just God is just stretched over the universe, and that's not what the Bible says. The Bible communicated that in the fullness of his being, he is everywhere at every point in creation all at the same time. That's super hard for us to grasp, and we would expect it to be super hard for us to grasp because God is what? God is infinite, and we are finite. Now, that's the presentation of the Bible, though, as we work our way through, that the fullness of his being is equal at all times in all places. And he is indivisible. He can't be divided up. He's not big and tall in size. So what I want to do, you guys, your notes are out. I want to make four observations about the omnipresence of God, four observations about the omnipresence of God, and then draw out some implications concerning the fear of the Lord. So talk about the, uh, the omnipresence of God under four headings. And then as I get to the end of each heading, give us some implications as it relates to the fear of of the Lord, all right? And these are, so the omnipresence of God is the big umbrella that we're working under, and uh, these are um, underneath them. So first of all, I think you guys have blanks in your notes. I want you to understand, I want us to think together about the fact that God is transcendent. Write that down if you're taking notes, brothers. God is transcendent. And what we mean by that is, is that Although God is present everywhere in his creation, God is infinitely above and incomprehensibly higher than everything that is created. As the transcendent creator, God reigns with absolute authority and control over his creation. And so the whole point of talking about the transcendent of God is we, as we drill down into the reality that God is everywhere all at once, the tendency can be is to think that because God interacts with and is 
in and through in the sense of manifesting his presence with creation that somehow he's equal to creation. You guys follow me? That we could think that somehow or that creation is equal to him or somehow that, like, that, like, that there's an equality there because God is in creation. We can start thinking like pantheists or panentheism, and, and we got to guard ourselves against that. That although that God draws near to us in his presence, he is still far above us in his majesty, in his authority, and in his glory, and in his holiness. That we should never allow the omniscience of God to somehow bring him down from his lofty throne that he reigns and rules from and the one that he is on. And to help us understand this or underscore this, turn in your Bibles with me to Isaiah 66. Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. The imagery here is just a marvelous word picture to help us understand the transcendence of God who is omnipresent. It says this in verse 1, Thus saith the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Stop right there. Right? So heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Right? So think about the two realms of creation. We can maybe think about three, but just think about the two realms of creation. What are they? Come here, guys, say it really loud. Heaven and earth. Right? You guys, there's a heaven and earth. Right? And understand what the text says. God doesn't say my throne is in heaven. And there's other places where it says that, but that's not what this text says. You guys read it there, right? What does it say? Right. Heaven is my throne. And so basically, I think what he's saying is, is that if you take the two realms of creation, heaven and earth, God is saying, I sit on top of one of them and I rest my feet on top of the other. You guys get the picture, right? Heaven is my throne, which means that he's doing what? That he's sitting as the sovereign ruler over heaven and the earth is my footstool. In other words, he's resting his foot on the earth. He's pointing up to us, and he's pointing up, obviously, here in the word to Israel, that even though you guys have built me a temple and I have made, made a, a special manifestation of my presence there, don't ever get in mind that somehow you think that I'm just like you, right? Or I'm just like an earthly king. I am nothing like an earthly king. I am nothing like you, right? My transcendent glory is such that I reign and I sit on the top of the circle of the, the peak of heaven. And you people, you little people on the earth, I rest my feet on that, even though we know that what? He doesn't have feet. But it's a word picture to communicate something of the greatness and the grandeur of God. And notice what he says there. Where then, and this is the question, this is the implication, this is the inference to draw. If in fact heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, where then is a house you could build for me? You guys, you get it? Like, I'm that big. Where then can you build a house? And, and he's almost saying this, that, that if in fact you could build a house, anybody see the next question? What's the next question? Come on, guys. Where would you put it? It's meant to make you laugh a little bit, you guys. You understand? He's speaking with a sense of irony here. It's like, okay, if you could build a house that I could live in, it would have to be so big, and then where would you put it? And the answer to these questions is obviously what? No. And he's speaking of his transcendent. He's speaking of the fullness of who he is. Like you can't think that way about God. That somehow or another that you could put him in a house and park him someplace and that will be where he lives. No, 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 no. That, that, that would be a betrayal of the transcendent majesty and authority and glory of God. 
in his creator majesty, it is never to be thought of as though he is the same as his creation or equal to his creation. He goes on and he says in verse two, you see it there, for my hands made all of these things. Thus all these things come into being, declares the Lord. Don't confuse me with creation. I made it. And if you make something, then you are not that which you what? Make, right? God, by definition, is other than his creation. He is the high and lofty one. In the fullness of his being, he deserves all glory, all honor, all praise, all obedience, and all fear. And so the implication there, then, is this, that although God is present in his creation, he is far above it, greater than it, he rules over it, he sustains it, and he is independent of it. Therefore, we are completely dependent on him for everything. The one who is where we are at all times is infinitely and incomprehensibly greater than we are. And so the question then is, what's the right response to that? Verse 2 tells us in the text. Do you guys see it there? But to this one, and we'll get to this when we talk about the eminence of God. But to this one, I will look. Although heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, I'm not so far away from you that I can't be near to you. But to this one, I will look. You know what he says? To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. You could almost say that that's a definition of the fear of the Lord, right? You could, right? This is the one that I'm going to look to, that I am the high and lofty one who reigns above the heavens, separate from my creation and yet intimately involved in my creation. And this is the one to whom I look. And the idea about I look, I look in mercy, I look in compassion, I look in grace, I look in favor. That's what he's saying. Not just look like I see. We know that God sees all things, but this is the one to which I will have a relationship with. The one who is humble, the one who is broken in heart, and the one who trembles at my word. That's the fear of the Lord, right? Do you see the connection there, brothers? That's why I'm just underscoring that. You see the connections, right? In other words, as we understand the grandeur and greatness and transcendent of God, then our response should be humility, brokenness of heart, and trembling at God. And as we do that, then we grow in intimacy in our walk with the Lord. And that's what this conference is all about, you guys. This conference is not about just getting information. This conference is about us growing in our knowledge of God so that we might respond in a way that would glorify him out of fear, the right kind of fear. So it's so helpful then for us to look at these texts that underscore the omnipresence of God. So let's move from the reality that God is transcendent to what I'm calling that God is uncontainable, that God is uncontainable. That just simply builds on what we just said and this guards us against thinking that God's essence is somehow or another like ours. And we are to never believe that because God is present in creation, that he can be contained by creation. And to underscore this, brothers, if you join me in First Kings, First Kings chapter 8. First Kings chapter 8. Here we have the dedication of Solomon's temple. And we know that Solomon built the temple. David wanted to build a temple for the Lord. 
God kind of pushed back. I don't, you know, like, I don't need that. I don't want that. David persisted. And God relented and said, okay, you can do it, but you won't do it because you're a man of war, but your son will do it. And Solomon, out of obedience to his father, built the temple, right? It's a grand, beautiful, glorious temple. He's praying and multiple offerings offered. They're dedicating the temple. But Solomon was a good theologian. And it's good to be a good theologian. Amen. We all are called to be good theologians. And look, notice what Solomon says. I'm just going to read verse 27. He says, but as they pray about God and God coming and being there, as they pray to the temple that God would hear all of things. But he noticed this. He says this. But God, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest of heavens, the heaven of heavens, cannot, what's the word there in your Bibles, brothers? Cannot contain you how much less this house which I have built. You guys get it. Even Solomon understanding that God would manifest his presence in a very special way in the temple would not be contained by that temple. And why is that important to us? It's important to us because if the truth be told, I think we sometimes think that way of how we relate. I think sometimes we think that God is contained in certain spaces and in certain places. And again, I want to underscore that God freely and sovereignly manifests himself in a special way throughout the Bible, right? Uh, Moses right, is, is, is standing in front of the burning bush. That's a special manifestation of God. Everybody understand, right? And it, it is holy because God manifests himself there, right? Uh, God manifests himself in the Ark of the Covenant, in the tabernacle, in the temple. There's, there's special times and places. He has a special manifestation of his presence even in heaven. But please understand, none of these created places can ever contain the fullness of God. And we should never think that it does. And I think sometimes we do. I was sharing with the first group that, that, that we, 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 we maybe sometimes even think that there's more of God to be gained at church. I'm meddling now. Right? That, 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 that the church house is where God dwells. And we go to the church to meet God. Now we go to church to meet each other. Right? Everybody, and you guys can talk to... Dr. Jones, raise your hand. I just, uh, this is my buddy, and he is the resident theologian. So if you have any questions about anything that I say, ask Dr. Jones afterwards, right? So we understand that the doctrine of the omnipresence of God guards us against thinking that somehow or another God is contained in certain, a certain space in a certain place, right? And that was one of Israel's problems, right? They, they, they thought they could just put God in a box, and leave him there. And there are times in which even in the Old Testament, it's like, where is the ark? Go get the ark. Because if we get the ark, we got God. Right? And that's a misunderstanding of the, of the grandeur and the majesty of who God is. Right? And it, and it impacts, quite frankly, brothers, the way that we behave. And we know this to be the case. Right? We get ourselves all nice and cordial and good and all the kind of stuff. We are on, let's be honest, we are on our best behavior when we go where? Come on, y'all. Church. Why? Because God is there, right? So like if I had an argument with my wife, I tried to get things all right before I get out the car. Come on. I know I'm not the only one, right? I just got to make things right. I got to make it. Honey, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry, right? The kids acting up. You make everything right, right? I don't want to be a hypocrite going into church. As if somehow or another there's more of God in that building. 
And then when we leave, come on, y'all. Y'all was on your best behavior. Praise the Lord, shouting and the whole kind of thing. And you leave church. And the moment you get in your car, you're berating your wife. Why are you talking to all them people? You know I want to get home because the Laker game comes on at 2 o'clock, right? And you're mad at the kids, right? Because you left the presence of God. No, you didn't leave the presence of God. Praise the Lord that when we gather, God meets with his people. But whether we gather here in this building or gather across the street at the park, God is with us. There's no more God to be gained in some sacred building than it is God to be gained in some what we call God forsaken land. The doctrine of the omnipresence of God means then that God is not contained in any one space or place. Therefore, he is everywhere in the fullness of his being. He is right here with us now. And he, brothers, will be with you when you leave here. When you walk across the parking lot, he will be with you. When you get in your car, he is there. When you drive home and walk into the house, he is there. That's the idea. Yes, he, he has in times sacred spaces, but he's there. Do you guys remember the conversation that Jesus had with the woman at the well? Right? She says that, hey, your people say that you should worship God over there, and my people say that we should worship God on this mountain. How does Jesus respond? Lady, a time is coming and now is when those who worship the Father worship him not in Jerusalem and not on the mountain, but they worship him in what? In spirit and in truth, such the Father seeks. In other words, God is saying, guys, yes, I accommodated myself for a time in a certain space, but don't think that because I did that, I can be contained. The very nature of who I am forbids that you think that way because it is not a reality. And so what are the implications to this? The implications are simple. The Lord is essentially and categorically other than we are. Therefore, he cannot be managed. He cannot be manipulated or maintained, which should elicit reverence and awe and fear from all who know him. That he is not left behind in any time, but he is everywhere at once in the fullness of his being. So under the omnipresence of God, we looked at God as being transcendent, God is being uncontainable. And then thirdly, God is everywhere. And I should have started here that God is everywhere. But after I realized that, my notes were already given to Dr. Felix, so I couldn't go back and change it. So here we are. But I should have started right here in this wonderful psalm, Psalm 139. So you guys want to turn there for a brief moment. And I commend this psalm to you for personal study. It really does. If you break it out, it really does speak to all three of the omnis that we mentioned at the beginning of our time together. The omnipresence of God, the omnipotence of God and the omniscience of God. Verses one through six really do speak to the omniscience of God. Seven through twelve, where we look at for a moment here, speak of the omnipresence of God. And then 13 down to verse 16, speak of the omnipotence of God. But for our time, let's just see what David says. And let me just say this. That as David goes through and reflects upon these wonderful doctrines of the majesty of God, that this is not an academic exercise for David. That when David speaks of this God who is everywhere all at once, it's personal for him. It's experiential for him. It affects and impacts his life. And my prayer is that it'll do the same thing for us. That as we go through these seminars, that this is not just good information. 
right? But, but we should be growing in our knowledge of who God is, and it should have an impact upon our everyday life as we grow in adoration and in awe and reverence of the God who has revealed himself to us in and through the word of God. Notice David and what David says in verse 7. That's where we pick it up. He asks these rhetorical questions. Where can I go from your presence? Or where can I flee? Or I'm sorry, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I go from your presence? And there I think the spirit, he's not necessarily referring to making a distinction of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, but, but God in the fullness of who he is. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? And what's the answer to the questions? Nowhere. That's the the answer. There's nowhere I can go where you will not be. And then he just unfolds that. He explains it as he goes through. Notice what he says. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. Now, this is obviously poetic language, beautiful poetry. I, I just think what, 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 what David is saying is that there's no place in the universe where I can go where you're not there. Right? So if I ascend into heaven, this is maybe a way that, that I've thought about it that is helpful. It doesn't originate in me. I think there's some credence to it here that, 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 that he's just saying that no matter what direction I go in the fullness of that direction, you are there. So he says there right in verse 2, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. What's the direction of heaven? Maybe this is the way to think about it. Up, right? And so you think about directions, which, which direction is up? Come on, you guys. North, right? I'm going up north, Yes. And then he says, if I descend down to the depths of Sheol, right? Which direction is Sheol? Down, right? I'm going down what? South, right? I could be off here, right? If, if I take the wings of the dawn, when you hear the word dawn, what do you think about? Come on, you guys. You think about the rising of the Sun, it's dawn, it's the rising of the sun. And then he says, if I, if, I, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, he's thinking about the Mediterranean Sea and Israel's relationship to the Mediterranean Sea is that, that, that the sea would be where? It would be west, that's where the sun would set. I think that's maybe a helpful way to think about it. So in other words, whether I go to the farthest spot north or the farthest spot east or the farthest spot west or the farthest spot uh, uh, south, there is no place that I can go that you are not already. And you guys understand what he says is not that you will follow me there. But he says, when I get there, you are already there. Hallelujah, brothers. That's what he's saying. And David isn't speaking out of the context. Some commentators say David is not speaking out of a context in the sense in which he's done something wrong and he's running away from the Lord like Jonah. I don't think that's it at all. I think David is marveling at the grandeur and the greatness of God. He's saying this in a positive way. That I could go nowhere away from you. He goes on, does he not? Verse 11, if I say surely the darkness will overwhelm me. Um, and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. I cannot hide myself. 
Brothers, that's good news. That's frightening news, and it's good news. Because sometimes we do want to hide from the Lord, yes? Or I'm the only one, right? That just something that I might be doing that I don't want the Lord to what? To know about, that I don't want the Lord to see. And sometimes guys even do things, right? This is amazing kind of thing that, 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 that people do things that are not to be seen, right? Back in the day before the internet, right, there used to be buildings, these shady kind of buildings, right? Shady buildings off by the airport someplace, right, with dark, dark windows, right? And guys would walk in with hats and the whole kind of thing. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? They used to go in under the cover of darkness because they didn't want anybody to what? See them. Now it's just a computer. Come on, y'all. On my desk, in my office, in my study that I'm on when my wife is going to the grocery store and the kids are at school. Or, or a woman I'm talking to at the water cooler, right, where everybody else is, is gone and I'm having a conversation that I shouldn't be having with her and I'm looking around because I don't want anybody to see. But guess who's there, brothers? I shouldn't say guess who's there. <laughs> Who is there? God is. In the fullness of who he is. Everywhere. This is just so helpful, brothers. This is practical. Again, this is not ivory tower theology. This is sanctifying to know that there is no place on earth, in heaven, in hell, anywhere where God is not in the fullness of his being. That means there's no place that I can ever be that God is not there. Watching me, knowing me, scrutinizing me. So how should we respond, brothers? Right? There's a Latin phrase, Curum Deo means in the presence of God. Well, you Ligonier fans, they're, they're always in their session, Curum Deo, like in the presence of God, or another way, in the face of God. We live life in the face and presence of God. That's what David is saying. And what are the implications? Wherever you are, God is always there in the fullness of his being. And I just gave us a couple of categories that may be attached to these implications. So we ought to worship him that way. We ought to worship him for who he is. Amen? And we had time. We can talk about a whole lot, but I, I won't go there. Worship him, right? So we don't just worship him on Sunday because we think that God is at church on Sunday. Come on, y'all, right? We fire it up. We sing. We do all the kind of stuff because we met with God on Sunday, and then you, you don't open your mouth to sing to God any other time until you go back to church on the following Sunday. What, what is that all about? Right? God is with you in your car on your way to your job. Worship him there. God is in the backyard with you when you like mowing the grass. <laughs> Worship him there. God is with you while you're standing in line because you're at the you know, Home Depot to pick up a new hammer. Worship him there. He's everywhere. Number two, no matter what or who you face in trials, and hardships, God is there. Is that not comforting? So God is there, right? So when Joseph is in the pit, guess who's with him? Come on, y'all. God is with him, right? When Daniel is in the lion's den, guess who's with him? God is with him. When Nehemiah is in front of the king, guess who's with him? God is with them when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the fiery furnace. Guess who's with them? God is. And he's with you. And he will be with you. 
no matter what you're going through, whether or not you sense and feel that he's with you, by faith you know that he's with you. Praise the Lord that he does manifest his, his presence and we can feel it. I, be careful there, right? Be careful there. He does do that. But we're overwhelmed with his presence. But he doesn't always do that. And even though we may not feel his presence, we have to stand on the sure word of God that he said that he would never leave us nor forsake us. And by faith, we must believe that, that no matter what you're going through, no matter how dark the days may look, no matter how hard the times are, he is with you. What comfort does that bring? There is no secret place or hidden space away from the presence of God. I already hinted at that. That's a warning to us. That should guard us from presumptuous sins, from thinking somehow or another that we are in our little secret place and nobody sees or because my wife doesn't see or my girlfriend doesn't see or my father doesn't see or my mom doesn't see or my teacher doesn't see or my boss doesn't see or my pastor doesn't see or my elders don't see or nobody sees. And I could just do this sin and then just presumptuously, you know, presume upon the grace of God and repent and find forgiveness. And we can, by God's grace, somebody say amen. There is forgiveness with the Lord. Amen. But the doctrine of the omnipresence of God should serve, right, as a guard against sinning against God. We started our time off by looking at Exodus 20:20, right? It says, Moses says, do not fear, for God has come to test you so that you might fear him and that you may not sin against him. The fear of the Lord guards us against sinning against God. And the knowledge of his omnipresence helps fuel the reality that he's always there. So it increases our fear of him, our reverence and awe of him so that we may not sin against him. And then fourthly there, we can never be in any place where God is not present. And that's just assurance. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for thou art with me. So, what assurance is that? In riches and in poverty, in sickness and in health, How many of you guys, uh, don't raise this, I mean, so some of you guys have had COVID. And I pray that those of you who had COVID didn't have it too bad. Some of us had COVID, and it was really bad. And I tell you, for those who had COVID, really bad. There were some dark nights of the soul. Dark nights of the soul. And in those times, to whom do you turn? And it may not be COVID, it may be something else. Coming home with a pink slip in your pocket. Coming from the doctor's office and, and, and you got the big C word, cancer. Coming home from the doctor with your child and they got the L word, leukemia. Come home and your wife doesn't want to be with you anymore. To whom then do you turn? To God, brothers. He's there with you. And when we say the fullness of his being, we mean the fullness of who he is. So he's, he's there in his comforting grace, in his saving and sanctifying mercies, in all of his compassion, in all of his kindnesses, in all of his understanding. He's there. And all that he is for us is available to us if we would but recognize that he is there. Now, real fast, I draw time to a close, and 
the fourth and in terms of understanding, we looked at uh, God in terms of his transcendence, in terms of his uncontainableness, and then obviously God is everywhere. And then the fourth one here is that God is imminent. And simply, you guys can turn to Acts 17, 24, where Paul talks about in him we live and we move and we have our existence. And this is just the other side of the transcendence of God, that God is high and lofty and exalted. And yet the eminence is, and it even takes it a step further than that he's here, but that he's near. He's near to those who call upon the name of the Lord. That the nearness of the Lord should be a certain encouragement to us that he wants a relationship with us. Jeremiah 23, 23 says this, God says, am I a God who is near and not a God far off? And the answer is, yes, you are a God who is near and he's near to us relationally, covenantally through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And all of history is moving. All of history is moving to a time. All of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is moving to a time where there will be a collapse in between heaven and earth and a, and, a, and, a, and a removal of any division between God's people and God. And we will be with him forever and ever and ever. We will, full, we will experience the fullness of the imminence of God. In the way that sanctified beings can, we will be in his presence forever. We're in his presence even now. He's near to us, brothers. So we should say, as the psalmist said in Psalm 73, 28, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. The nearness of God. And let me just say this, and we'll close our times, brother, and get ready for our next session, that if you don't know the nearness of God, if you don't understand the fear of the Lord, that you can come to know God through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, today, right now. But what we've been talking about is a reality right now, that God is near to us. He is here in his saving mercy and grace. And that if you don't know him, that the free gift that he offers to us is salvation through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, his eternal son, came into this world to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, namely live a perfect life or satisfying the law. He obeyed the Father and thought word and deed his entire life, uh, securing for us a righteousness, the righteousness that we don't have, the righteousness, the only righteousness that God would receive into his favor. And then he went to a cross and there he died, taking the punishment that our sins deserve. He died not because of any sins that he committed, but he died for the sins of all those who would ever turn and repent and embrace him. On that cross, he was dying, bearing the punishment that our sins deserved as our substitutionary sacrifice. And God satisfied his wrath on Jesus. And he went into the grave and on the third day he was raised from the dead bodily showing that his offering to the Father was acceptable, showing that he defeated death, grave, and hell, and Satan. And he was exalted and ascended back to heaven, where he reigns and he rules at the right hand of God as the great high priest of his people in the head of the church. And he offers forgiveness of sins to everyone who would turn from their sins and receive him by faith. And if you don't know him this morning, I pray that the cry of your heart would be, Lord, I fear you now. Come into my life. Change me. Forgive me. Wash me. May I be born again. Work faith into me that I might trust in you. And the promise of Scripture is, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. Amen? Let's pray together, brothers. Father, thank you for our time together. We pray that you might take these words and that which was true to your word, you would seal to our hearts in sanctifying grace. Thank you, Lord, for your revelation that is so clear and powerful to us. We pray, O oh God, that we would walk out of fear of you, that we might draw closer to you and worship you more accurately and give you the praise and glory and the honor that you alone deserve. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, brothers.